0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage in the book of Jeremiah, but first I want to tell you about Something I prefer in clothing. You didn't know I was this uh, clothing guru, did you? Now don't laugh. All I want to say about clothing is I prefer cotton. Anybody out there with me on cotton? Okay, I don't like my clothes to be Synthetic, petroleum-based products. I like cotton. Cotton feels good when you're wearing it. Feels good on your skin. Seems very compatible when you wear it. When it's clean. Right? Clean clothes can have kind of a gloriousness to them. You put them on, you... You put on nice, clean cotton clothes, don't you feel good? You're feeling pretty good at that point. Usually it looks fairly good. Although I have some clothes, or have had in the past, that even when they're clean, don't look so good. Because um, some shirts especially that I wear to chop wood in and that type of thing, even when clean, have additional ventilation over time. And eventually, they're retired by my wife. After you wear a shirt, usually it goes in the hamper, doesn't it? Or in the pile. I don't know if you're hamper people or pile people. But it goes into the hamper. And there it mixes with all the other occupants. And some people, only men I'm sure, sometimes go to the hamper or the pile and fish out yesterday's shirt. Even a cotton shirt. And they'll put it on. And maybe they'll sneak past their wife that day. And they'll wear that shirt a second day. But it isn't as good, right? It isn't as good. And unless you're a single man, you, do, you don't get the third day. And you really don't want it. Because when those clothes sit in that pile, they, they, they get kind of various. They mix with the other clothing, and there's wet clothing in the pile usually. There's grimy clothing, and things kind of take on a look and a smell. And you just don't want to wear it. Well, clean clothes are glorious, but dirty clothes are not. And this is just my way of introducing the passage that we're going to look at today from the book of Jeremiah. It has to do with a garment and the Lord's testimony through his prophet to his people. Jeremiah, essentially the book, is three sections. The largest section at the beginning where the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah to Judah and telling Judah, uh, what's coming? Repent. It's coming. It's coming. Repent. I'm getting fed up with you. Repent. It's coming. Repent. Then there's a small section toward the end where he says prophecies to other nations that surround. And then, of course, the last chapter where they did not repent. And then the last chapter, you see the uh, judgment of God and the, and the uh, siege and taking over of Jerusalem. But this morning we're reading from that first larger section where God is through the prophet speaking to the people and calling them to repentance. So here is the word of the Lord from Jeremiah. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and buy yourself a linen waistband and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I bought the waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord and I put it around my waist Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, Take the waistband that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a crevice of the rock. So I went, and I hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord had commanded me. After many days the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the waistband which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug And I took the waistband from the place where I had hidden it, and lo, the waistband was ruined. It was totally worthless. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, Just so will I destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them, Let them be just like this waistband, which is totally worthless. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel, and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they did not listen. This is the word of the Lord. So Jeremiah is given an instruction. He said, he's told to buy a waistband. It's probably some kind of sash that goes around. And more likely an adornment, an accessory. And we buy accessories, don't we? I sometimes wear a tie, sometimes a tie clip. Uh, some of us wear a few accessories, some wear none. Some of us take 20 minutes choosing our accessories every day, right? But the accessory is made so that we what? I wear accessories to humble myself. I, f- I try to find ugly accessories to buy so that people will, will realize that I'm such a humble man. Now, is that why we buy accessories? When you go to the store and you're searching in the, what do you call the accessory Jungle. And you're searching there for that thing. Are you looking for the ugly thing? Are you looking for the, the thing that's just not quite complimentary to you? <laughs> something that will clash with your hair. Is that what you're looking for? No, of course not. We're looking for something that will adorn us. And so Jeremiah is told to go buy a belt, a waistband. And it's supposed to adorn him. It's going to be a, 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 a study, an example for the people as he, as he teaches them what God is saying and warning them and about what's coming. And so he buys it, and he wears it. And then the Lord comes to him again and says, go and take it and bury it, bury it by the Euphrates. So he goes out by the river, And it's quite a distance for him to go. And he digs a spot, and he buries the waistband by the river. And then he goes home again. And after a while, the Lord says to him, Now, go find that waistband that I told you to bury. Dig it up and bring it back. So he goes back to the place. I don't know if he'd marked the place. Uh, I don't know if he had marked it. Uh, some theologians think that this entire thing happened in a vision to Jeremiah, but I'm inclined to think he really did it. Okay? But regardless, he goes back to the place, he digs it up, and what does he find? Does he find a beautiful, clean waistband? Have you ever dug up a piece of fabric that's been in the ground? It's not normal for us to bury fabric, right? Right? What happens when you bury a piece of fabric in the ground or in a, a refuse pile? What happens to the fabric? It's wet. It comes out, and usually there's some new colors showing, right? And the new colors are kind of poisonous looking greens and purples that, that uh, look like death and poison. And it's because they are. It's corruption, it's filth, it stinks. It's corrupted, it's rotted. And so this is what Jeremiah does, he brings this out. And then the Lord begins to explain, what was it I wanted from my chosen people? I wanted a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. I wanted an accessory that made me look good. Now here's the difference between our buying accessories and what the Lord is saying. When we buy accessories, it's because we really need them. Do you understand? They can actually improve us in a way that what God's talking about doesn't improve him. It improves him because it's his work, it's his fashioning, it is his beautifying that goes into this accessory, but it's not so with us. When we buy an accessory, we haven't really created the accessory. We have just went and bought it, and it's supposed to make us good. This accessory exists. This Israel, this Judah, is, exists to be uh, a beautifying thing because it, it shows the work of God, and it adorns God. And he says, I... I wanted to attach them to me. Right around, I wanted them to be close to me. Very, very close. It reminds me of Adam, or not Adam, Aaron, in the Old Testament in Exodus 28. They said, God says to Moses, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So these garments were supposed to be beautiful, but they were also supposed to have something about them that that registered Aaron's circumstance as the priest. And so they were supposed to bring glory and beauty. And God's people were supposed to adorn him and bring to him glory and beauty, but it was the glory and beauty of God's own work in them, choosing them, cleaning them, calling them, saving them. God is holy, and he would have a beautiful garment to adorn him. It was the highest calling any creature could ever have, but it would not be, because these people had refused to listen to his words, and they had walked in the stubbornness of their hearts, and they had gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. He had sent prophets and prophets to his people. It was, a, it, was a, it was a verse of a song that just kept playing over and over and over again. God sends prophets, they won't listen. God sends prophets, they won't listen. But this is a biggie. Because what's about to happen here is a big chapter in the life of God's people. He sends Jeremiah, and they won't listen. And they actually go deaf. Deaf in their stubbornness. And they go to worshiping idols, and they give themselves to worshiping idols and their idolatry. And so Jeremiah stands, presides over the last days. His his ministry was about 40 years long, 40 years of saying this kind of stuff to these people, and nobody would listen. And he had a lot of difficulty He was not treated well at all. And that was regular that he was wondering, am I going to survive this day? Am I going to live through this day? In the end, Judah would be carted off to Babylon. Among her people would be Daniel and others. And Jerusalem would be sieged, starved, overthrown, looted, burned, razed, and all of her people deported. And this, some historians think, was a worse judgment than when the Lord destroyed Jerusalem in the Roman time after Christ. The way it happened and how awful it was because of his judgments on these people. Horrible. Horrible horrible judgment, but it's what they wanted. God had pleaded with them. He had pleaded with them. He had warned and warned, and they would not listen. And it would be some time before the the prophet Daniel would begin his work of standing and interceding from Babylon, interceding for Judah and for Israel. And what would he pray when he asked God to forgive them? What, would he, what sins would he confess to God? Well, he would confess that they wouldn't listen. We wouldn't listen, God. We wouldn't listen. And I know the number of years that you spoke through Jeremiah that we would be here, and, and I'm seeing the time coming to its time, and I want to begin the work of interceding for your people so that you will save us. We served other gods, and he says the curse of Moses came on us. Moses told Israel if they would leave the Lord and they would worship other gods and become idolatrous, then all the curses of the Canaanites would come on them. And here they are, killed, deported, dispossessed. And Daniel prays. They had refused to listen to God's words, and they had walked in the stubbornness of their hearts, and they went after other gods to serve them and bow down to them. John Calvin, the theologian, says the Jews entertained a foolish confidence and promised themselves perpetual happiness because God had chosen them as his people. This indeed would have been a perpetual glory to them had they not violated their pledged faith But their defection rendered void God's covenant as far as they were concerned. For though God never suffered his faithfulness to fail, however false and betraying they were, yet the adoption from which they had departed availed them nothing. But as they thought it an unalienable defense, the prophet again repeats that they had been indeed adorned with singular gifts, but that as they had not remained faithful, they would be deprived of them. And so what? They were thrown out. They were thrown into the mud. They were cast aside to receive in themselves the rot of the world that they so loved. And that's what happened to them. And so there was Daniel in Babylon with God's people, just like that waistband buried in the mud buried in the mud. And he sought forgiveness. And we know that God did work to forgive his people. Isn't it nice that was the Old Testament? Don't you feel good that we don't have any kind of worries like that? It's a setup, isn't it? It's a setup. Because the fact is, we wonder, and some of us think that God has changed. Some of us think that the New Testament God would rather have a garment wrapped around him that had been laying in a stinking muck, muck hole for the last six months. That's what we think. Because that's the New Testament God. God. But that's not true. That's not true at all. In fact, things have not changed. God would still have His spotless, holy adornment. Ephesians five twenty-five twenty-seven reads: "Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by." the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. Now what does it say that the church is there? Well it's talking about the church being a nice piece of China dinner setting, right? Is that what he's talking about? What does it mean to wash what does it mean to take away the wrinkle? What does it mean to remove the spot? Or what are we talking about there? Are we talking about dinnerware? Well, if your dinnerware is wrinkled, you've got some pretty strange dinnerware. He's talking about a garment. This is the God of the New Testament. This is the God of the New Testament saying that he would have a church that was a garment that would adorn him, that was spotless and not wrinkled, that was not filthy and defiled, and that he would clean and make this garment, and that he would take out the wrinkles and the spots. The church would be the greater realization of his magnificent plan to adorn himself with glory. Now, you have to understand that Jesus washes us, Jesus cleans us, Jesus makes us without spot and wrinkle. Who made Daniel clean and without spot and wrinkle? This is the Sunday school question. It was Jesus. He was veiled, but Daniel was made clean by the same Jesus that makes us clean. And Daniel is brought together with us Into this church that is this glorious realization of God's garment that He adorns Himself with, this beautiful garment that brings Him glory. Titus 2, which was in our assurance of pardon this morning, is in my text because it says specifically, as was read this morning in verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So it's just like the people he's talking about in Jeremiah's day. These, You were the people I chose. You were the people I chose. And now in the New Testament, he's saying it again, but he's expanded the the group because it's not just Jews, it's also Gentiles, and he's saying, you are the people I've chosen to be my own possession. I am purifying you for myself. In 1 Peter chapter two, it says in verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, uh, I'm sorry, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. If we went through the Bible and we talked, just in the New Testament, and we read all the places that had the inference of God having a people, the church, we would find a lot. But those are very, very specific places. God still has a church. He has an expectation of his people adorning him just like he had in Jeremiah's day. But the Jews in Jeremiah's Jerusalem banked on their confidence in their long-held position as God's chosen people. They bet that they would continue to see good days just because of that. Just because of that. And God says, I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Are we faced with the same temptations as Judah in Jeremiah's day? Do we have the temptation to refuse to listen to his words, to walk in the stubbornness of our hearts, to go after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them? I was reading this article this week of... Clergy gather to bless one of the only U.S. clinics performing late-term abortions. And five clergy, four Christian, one rabbi, gather to bless this late-term abortion clinic, and they, one of them went through it and sprinkled water on all the rooms and on the parking lot, saying, in his words, He was consecrating it. It scares me. You might say, wait a minute, those aren't Christians. They just say they are. Their confidence is in God's, or a God, that they fashioned in their own minds. And I say, okay. How about pastors who perform same-sex marriages? We've come to talk about them as mirages because they're illusory and delusional. And so to say a same-sex mirage is to, is to get somebody to think, well, you don't you know how to pronounce marriage? No, no, I'm very intentional. It's a mirage. It's a delusion. It's, it's, your, it's a delusion to think that a man and a man can be married. God instituted marriage, and... It, it, there's no place for same-sex in marriage. But what about pastors who uh, perform same-sex marriages or mirages? You say, wait a minute, those aren't Christians. Their confidence is an organized religion. They have got these big, powerful religious bodies they have to keep running. I say, Okay. How about pastors who give a quiet blessing to same-sex couples in their churches? So they acknowledge them, but quietly. Don't make too much fuss about it. And I say, um, okay. You say, they're not Christians. I say, okay. I say, what about pastors who don't warn those who are tempted by same-sex intimacy? Well, now we're getting closer. Getting closer, right? But you got to know, i a, I got a trap I'm going to spring, right? Just so you know, uh, spoiler alert. Okay? What about those pastors who won't warn those tempted by same-sex intimacy? You say, that's right, Pastor Max. The church out there is in an awful state today. They're trusting in grace, 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 and it's wrong, 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 and it's bad, bad, bad. That's right. I say, okay. How about the pastors and churches that trust in there not being any of the above? Ooh. 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 And you say, wait a minute, Pastor Max, do you think we're supposed to be like those above? I said, no, I didn't say that. What about those who trust in not being any of the above? Well, you see, it's getting kind of uncomfortable for me. How about you? You're getting uncomfortable? You ought to be getting just a little bit uncomfortable. Because it felt good when we were talking about them there out there. But then when we come closer to home and we realize that we have to produce something more than just not being that to be God's adornment. How about whether or not we listen to God? How about our idolatry? You say, well what has god said that that we have not listened to well when have he when have we gone to worship by and now i stop because i assume that as you think about it you stop because it's very interesting the two passages i read from titus and first peter that talk about us being God's possession. In the surrounding context, it doesn't talk about abortion or homosexuality. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't talk about that at all. It talks about a lot of things. It talks about a lot of things that are expected of us as God's people, and if we were to go and read them, we would start having these kinds of, of um, You know, not like when we read our Bible when we're just trying to satisfy the list on on the day. You know, you check the list, I read my Bible. You know how you read your Bible that way? You just read through it and you just think, eh, I kind of got it, you know. I kind of got it. Click, check the list. No, no, when we look at those passages in in 1 Peter and Titus and we look at what surrounds them and what it says about being man and what it says about being woman and what it says about being an employee and what it says about being a citizen and what the expectations are for us in all of those categories and how that is how we are peculiar. And then we say, oh, wait a minute. That's just a little too close. That's a little too close. I was feeling peculiar enough already, right? Do you feel peculiar enough? Who feels peculiar enough? Come on, liars. Who feels peculiar enough? When you tell somebody you go to Clear Note Church, do you feel peculiar enough? Okay. Now, who feels like you are peculiar enough? Now we don't want to raise our hands, but if we're honest in our attitudes and our lives, we kind of all have we've all kind of all kind of come to the point where we're settled that we're peculiar enough. Okay. I've been thinking about this sermon for a few weeks, and the poor staff has been listening to me about this. But we're talking about this issue of peculiarity and God's glory. And here's God over here, and He says, Be ye holy as I am holy. He's absolutely holy. There is no shadow in God. There is no place in God. There isn't a, a point in God that is not holy and absolutely peculiar. Okay? Not one. And so over here we have the world represented by this microphone stand. And then you have you and I. We're feeling awfully peculiar. And God says, be holy as I am holy. And then He shows us in the text what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to make application to our lives because this is what it means to be holy as a man. This is what it means to be holy as a woman. This is what it means to be holy as a servant or an employee. This is what it means to be holy as a citizen. And when we look at that, we go, I'm feeling really peculiar already. I stand out. And God says, now, it isn't on some kind of a good enough scale. Does that make sense? Okay, here's the scale. And while I'm here, I'm I'm fairly peculiar. I'm more peculiar than all those other. I'm I'm doing pretty well in the peculiar, holy kind of set apart way. And God says no. He gives us objective things to understand. He tells us how to live. And it's, there's those very things that when we read them, we just go, uh, and when we really read them. We go, oh, that's what you want me to do. That's what you want me to do. And we're so cowardly. And we're so weak. And we love the world so much. And there are things God wants us to do. There are things that we could do to be brave and useful. But we're scared, we're timid, we're afraid We're faithless. And it's a good thing there's Jesus. So think about it. What is the thing that you think you ought to do? Here's here's an idea for you. Late at night, 10 o'clock, get in your car, get on 37, go on the bypass, drive by IU Stadium and shout, in your car, in the dark, with the windows down, at the top of your lungs, Jesus is Lord! You, you feel weird just imagining it, don't you? And I'm telling you, this is how we fall short of peculiarity. Where God's people have, by His mercy said, Jesus is Lord, and then submitted themselves to lions. And it freaks us out to do it in the car, in the dark. I don't know what your thing is. I know what the Bible says. I know what I think about some of the applications we can make in our church, and our lives as men, as women, as children, as employees, as citizens. I know. But you ought to know... Because they're the very things that have been working on you That God would say to you I want that spot Out I want that wrinkle Gone I want an adornment That's worthy Of the, of the, the waste That it will be on That's what God has for us Now What does it mean it means like Daniel we repent of our sins. It means like Daniel we recognize that we don't listen to God. It means like Daniel we say, very specifically, we've been idolaters. That we have loved this world. We have not done what we have been told to do. And it means like Daniel that we, we plead with the God that Daniel understood was full of Mercy. He, he is full of mercy. See? This is God. This is the God we need. The God who would love us and demonstrate it by giving his son for us. He's absolutely full of mercy. But he's not going to be merciful to a stubborn, deaf group of people. He's going to be merciful to those who are contrite, as we heard this morning who recognize and repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ and say, okay, here I am. Put me in the washer. Lay that iron on me. Get the wrinkles out. Get that stain out of me, Father. Have mercy on me. So this is our privilege. We have been called to adorn God. We've been called to be an accessory to God. That's good. That's good. I want to end, before we have communion, with uh, John Calvin's prayer in his commentary after this passage. And I'm sorry about the these and thous and the things that'll be a little choppy, but it's very, very sweet because he prays for those who are living buried in the muck, basically, and asks God to pull them out. And he prays for all of us, saying, uh, "We're so weak, <laughs> we're so weak, and yet we have a God that will that will deliver us, and He does." He does. Let's pray together. Almighty God, grant that as so many of the people who have been gathered by thee, that they might be the body of thine only begotten Son, have fallen away. That have by their ingratitude alienated themselves from the hope of eternal salvation. O oh, grant that they may again at this day be united together and hold with us the true unity of faith, so that with one heart and one mouth we may profess thee as our God and Father, and so learn to swear by thy name that we may acknowledge thee as our judge and to ascribe to thee all power over us until we shall at length enjoy that eternal inheritance, into the hope of which Thou hast called us, and daily invitest us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, grant, almighty God, that as we are by nature frail vessels, and our frailty is such that we of ourselves melt away and when we become stronger, we cannot stand by our own power. O oh, grant that being supported by thy power, we may indeed rejoice in the perpetuity of our salvation, not indeed relying on any earthly protection, but because thou hast been pleased to choose us as thy people, and, we, and may we at the same time so pursue the course of our life that we may not by our treachery exclude thy grace from us, but give place to thee, that we may be more and more enriched by those gifts which pertain to the hope of a future life, until we shall at length come to that full and perfect happiness in thy celestial kingdom, which is laid up for us by Christ our Lord. Amen.